Make sure they all actually hit out. You want to get out your sermon outline, and it is on compassion. More compassion. Jeff talked about compassion this week, but you can't get all of the compassion of Christ on one Sunday. So it's much bigger than that. So there's more today. We're going to finish up Matthew chapter 9 as we race through the Gospel of Matthew. Let's turn to the end of Matthew chapter 9. Your Bibles, your various devices, and look in the outline. Uh, Whatever you're using, go to Matthew 9. We'll start at verse 32. And you may read along. I ask that you would also listen carefully as this is the Word of God. Starting at verse 32. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. The crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to this amazing gospel to learn more about your son, Jesus. And we ask you this morning, give us the grace to understand. And some of this teaching here is hard, and it's hard because we don't like to obey. And to be honest, telling people about Jesus and demonstrating compassion uh, to messy people and praying for them is hard work. To help us to consider what it means to follow you and not ourselves. What it means to tell people about Jesus. What it means to demonstrate compassion. What it means to pray. By your spirit, open your word to us and help us to see Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. Andre didn't have a clue what to do. Andre was from Bulgaria. And he had never seen the game of softball before. And before he knew what was happening, he found himself on the team and found himself playing catch-up and catcher at the same time. See, he came to visit his friend here in this country, and he was on the men's softball team at their church, and and they needed a 10th player. And Andre was just a warm body standing nearby. So they put him at catcher thinking that would simplify things to me and he won't have to move much, just catch the ball and throw it back to the pitcher. So they stood him behind home plate and left him there. When they turned around, Andre was still standing where they left him. So they said, Andre, you need, you need to bend down. So he bent down. And uh, like he was touching his toes, and one of the team members had to run out there and show him how to crouch down uh, behind home plate. And they listed Andre 10th in the batting order. They thought he'd have uh, time to get the idea of hitting the ball. And he did. And on the second pitch, uh, Andre hit the ball. 
It wasn't great, but it, it was probably worth a single. You know, you could get to first, and Andre just stood there watching the ball. And the whole team started yelling at him to run. So he did, to third. And so the coach had another little visit with Andre, and I showed him where first base was and explained to him how he needed to run like the wind to first base if he hit the ball. So next time up, he connected again, and this time he ran as hard as he could to first, and he kept running, and he didn't stop. And next thing you know, Andre's out in right field yelling, touchdown! Maybe you've been there. Maybe not out in right field, literally, but you found yourself in a strange world wondering what you're supposed to be doing. Remember the first day on the job? You interviewed well, showed them how confident you were, and then suddenly there you were, a new desk, new computer, and a new realization you didn't have a clue where to start. And life can be like that sometimes. We're put in strange situations and we don't know how to respond, and we run in the wrong directions and we find ourselves out in right field. And we need a job description to tell us what we're supposed to be doing. Surprisingly, even followers of Jesus seem to need a job description. A large-scale survey conducted by the Barna Research Group revealed some startling information when they asked uh, Christian adults to identify the most important goal for their life. Not a single person said it was to be a committed follower of Jesus. In fact, less than 20% had any specific or measurable goals related to their personal spiritual development. And Jesus' invitation is to follow me. That's the job description. To follow him and learn from him to do what he would do in your shoes. And Jesus basically did two things. He had something to say and he had something to do. Which brings us to our passage this morning in Matthew chapter 9. Where as we learned last week uh, from Reverend Lee, Jesus responds to people with compassion. And he does it in some pretty ordinary ways. He has something to say and he has something to do. Before we look at it specifically, I have to ask the question, why all these miracles here in Matthew? We've had a whole bunch of them in Matthew chapter 7 through 9, and now we're at the end of chapter 9. And there's actually three sets of three miracles uh, here in these chapters. The first set is in beginning of Matthew 8. We had the healing of a leper, the healing of the uh, sixth servant of the Roman centurion, and the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. Then the second set was the end of Matthew 8, beginning of Matthew 9, and we had the quieting of the winds and the waves on the Sea of Galilee, the deliverance of two demon-possessed men, and the healing of the paralyzed man. And then the last half of Matthew 9, the last set of miracles, we had a double miracle involving raising a dead girl and a couple with the healing of a woman who suffered from bleeding. And then we had the healing of the two blind men. And finally, we have the healing of a demon-possessed man who is unable to speak. And that's the miracle we'll be looking at very briefly today. So at the beginning, we looked at these miracle accounts, largely a story showing Jesus' authority over sickness, just as the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7 focused on his authority as a teacher uh, but as we've progressed through these accounts, we've seen it's much bigger than that. He's much more concerned than just with physical healing. In fact, we had the calming of the wind and the waves in the Sea of Galilee. 
showing Jesus' authority over nature. We had his authority over demons, much more a spiritual than a physical matter. And then we had, most suggestive of all, the link between the forgiveness of sins and the healing of the paralyzed man at the beginning of chapter 9. So Matthew selects these specific stories to show that Jesus came not so much to heal us of our physical diseases, but far more serious problems of curing us of our sin to set us on the path of service to him. So what's really disclosed in these healing stories is Jesus' ability to take away our sin and restore us to spiritual health. And understanding this underlying meaning explains all the other uh, stories in these chapters, the non-healing stories, and why they're there. The first one, if you remember, had to do with discipleship, where people said they wanted to follow Jesus, but they had other concerns and they didn't follow him. And they didn't follow him for healing, and so they remained in their sins. Second passage concerned the calling of Matthew himself, and Jesus' statement that he had not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And like the paralytic in the preceding story, Matthew is healed, but he's also healed of sin. And when Matthew's healed, he shows it immediately by seeking to introduce his friends to the Savior. And that brings us to today's passage, picking up the story. We're still looking at the compassion of Jesus. And the first thing we see is that compassion responds with words. Compassion responds with words. Starting at verse 32. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. This last healing story is unique to Matthew's gospel. So why does Matthew include the healing of this demon-possessed man at this point? Especially, he's already told us the story of the two demon-possessed men earlier in chapter 8, and in a lot more detail. And Matthew probably included this unique story because due to this man's uh, demon possession, he was mute. He couldn't talk. But after the demon was driven out, he could. It says the man spoke. What I'm trying to say is I think Matthew included this healing because it fits his pattern of explaining what salvation is and where it leads. And in this case, it leads to speaking for Jesus. It's exactly what Jesus commissions his disciples to do in the next chapter, which we'll look at next week. And speaking of speaking... We should note there's three kinds of speaking in these verses. We see the crowds are amazed, and they speak about Jesus. Verse 33, never was anything like this seen in Israel. Well, that's not quite true, because we've already seen eight other miracles in, in these two chapters. So clearly, it has been seen. It just, maybe they didn't see it. But even so, it's not quite good enough. At the very least, miracles should have led them to faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And in fact, these miracles prepare for the defense of Jesus' Messiah 
to the disciples of John the Baptist in Matthew 11, when he tells them the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. So that's first we have the crowd speaking about Jesus. Second, we have the Pharisees speaking against Jesus. Saw the sad beginning of their opposition earlier where they called his claim to forgive sins blasphemy. And then they criticized him for eating with sinners. And in the story of raising Jairus' daughter, they laughed at him. But here they do the worst thing of all, being helpless to deny the miracle because the mute man speaks, they attribute it to Satan's power. Verse 34, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. So we have people speaking about Jesus, people speaking against Jesus, but then we have people speaking for Jesus. And it's illustrated by the testimonies of all these people who have been healed. They've experienced this wonderful deliverance, and they can't keep quiet about it. We see that in most of the healing stories in Matthew. Those who have been saved by Jesus want to talk about it. And Matthew's point is people who've been saved from sin will see Jesus in new ways and tell others about him. But you also have to see that the power of Jesus is not displayed in a climate of unbelief. Because earlier in Matthew 9, the crowd around the women didn't believe, and they received nothing. The professional mourners around the girl didn't believe, and Jesus told them actually to go away. And the Pharisees didn't believe. And like the crowd they despised, they too received nothing. You have to realize it's possible to jostle Jesus in the crowd and remain utterly unchanged. It's possible to see miracle after miracle. We've now got nine miracles in a row and ascribe them to the devil. It's not the case, as sometimes you hear people say, if only I had been there, I would have believed. There's plenty of people there who didn't believe even though there's this unimpeachable evidence spread before their eyes. The human heart is capable of profound resistance and deep self-deception. And it's only when we trust that we find salvation. And for you, that faith may be a last resort. You may even feel it's a little superstitious. You may know it's theologically deficient. But if it's placed in Jesus then it binds sinner and Savior together. And we can respond and become disciples like Matthew, or we can ascribe his power to the devil like the Pharisees. And the issues are clear. So the first thing we see is that real compassion, Christian compassion, begins with words. And those words should be for Jesus. Second, we see compassion responds with action. Again, going back to verse 33, compassion responds with actions. When the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said he cast out demons by the prince of demons. And then verse 35, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So Matthew now tells uh, us 
that followers of Jesus, having been lost sheep themselves, will have compassion on other sheep who belong to Jesus but have not yet been brought into his fold. They were, as verse 36 says, like sheep without a shepherd. And again, why is this here? Why is Matthew telling us how Jesus feels about all these people who, despite all kinds of evidence, simply don't believe in him? And it's very important to realize that Jesus perceives their need. He sees them as people in great need, as messy people. Just as Ezekiel had done before, my responsive reading this morning was from Ezekiel 34. And all of Ezekiel 34 is about the Lord seeing suffering, needy, messy people and promising to come to them as the shepherd. And as we read earlier, I'll just quote a couple verses. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out as the shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And ultimately, this is the supreme motivation for ministry, to see the need of those who are perishing outside the kingdom. Motivation comes when you see people who are harassed by pressures, exhausted by the pace of life, going nowhere, being led astray by false ideologies. It comes when we see the church is weak, or is just out to entertain, or is self-absorbed, or is untrained, or unwilling to sacrifice, or is afraid to witness, or is short of conviction, or is just simply prayerless. And I was thinking about this. I was thinking, this is where the church in Asia has so much to teach us. Because it's seen the needs of people, it's seen the weakness of the church, and it's acted. And the results are celebrated throughout the world. Our denomination, the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, has the largest Presbyterian missions force in the Western world. Just a month ago, we had Paul Koistra, who's the coordinator for MTW here, telling us about some of the things that are going on. But the reality is we are dwarfed by the Presbyterian Church in South Korea. It has sent out thousands and thousands of people throughout Asia, Africa, and Latin America, and now moving powerfully into the Middle East, and that's good news. Because they're open to hearing the gospel from Koreans. They're not open to hearing the gospel from Americans. May have something to do with our recent visits there. But they're hearing the gospel from the Korean church. And we should be praying for them. We have much to learn from our Korean brothers. Just we read here, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. The Greek word for compassion, which I can't pronounce, uh, means that he was moved in his gut. He was stirred way down deep inside. And I'm afraid the church today, we're just so unlike Jesus. I think for the most part, we don't care. Maybe we're too empty, maybe we're too respectable, maybe we're too similar to those who don't believe, and it's just embarrassing to approach them. Maybe we're too ignorant of the gospel to share it naturally. Maybe we don't really know what's good about the good news. Maybe we're too uh, scared of what people will think, we're too insulated, we don't have any non-Christian friends, or we're too apathetic. Whatever the reason, 
by and large, we don't share the compassion of Jesus. And the Gospels tell us repeatedly that when Jesus saw people, he had compassion on them. And maybe we don't talk to them because we don't see them. And maybe we don't act on their behalf or move into a relationship with them because we just don't care all that much about them. And that doesn't describe Jesus. It shouldn't describe those who follow him. Right before the Sermon on the Mount, his authoritative teaching, we read in Matthew 4, his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, uh, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And now we get to the end. We've had his authoritative teaching, and then we have his authoritative actions in chapters 8 and 9. And at the end we read, And Jesus went through all the, uh, throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and affliction. So we see, and Jesus takes action. He does something. He says something, and he does something. And real compassion, Christian compassion, begins with words and actions. And those words and actions should be the words and actions that demonstrate the compassion of Jesus. Third, we see that compassion responds with prayer. Compassion responds with prayer. Picking up at verse 36 to the end. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. When he saw the crowds, he taught them and preached to them and healed them. The primary problem that hindered Jesus' ministry as he taught, preached, and healed in Israel is the primary problem that hinders it today. The workers are few. In his own day, Christ's workers were few. They're still few today. The first need in his ministry is for workers. One of the most important things the workers have to understand is that their numbers are few, and they can be increased only by God's provision and power. So I think it's important to note two things here. One, it doesn't make that much of a difference to show compassion with words and actions if you don't pray. Because you're essentially telling God, that's okay, I've got this one. And just like everything else in the Christian life, we're not to do this in our own strength. We're to show the compassion in our words and actions in dependence and reliance upon Jesus with his strength and his power and his wisdom, not our own. If we're going to show compassion like Jesus, we need to do it in Jesus' name. Second, it's clear here that it's his harvest. It's not ours. I don't know about you, but I find that to be a relief. It doesn't all depend on us. We're not the lords of the harvest. We're called on to pray. Harvest is great. Opportunity is knocking. But there's a lord of the harvest. And what an encouragement that should be. We're not responsible for the growth of the kingdom. He is. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the details of the harvest, basically because that's next week's sermon. But I do want to spend a little time on this one important aspect of the harvest, and that's realizing the next step in Jesus' method here is prayer. 
his disciples are to ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Christ's workers are to pray for more workers. And the Christian's first responsibility is not to go out and start working as soon as you see a need, but to come to the Lord in prayer. Waiting on the Lord is a crucial part of serving him. If you remember, that's true right from the beginning of the church when the disciples received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. They weren't prepared to go out and be witnesses and start this church and do all this stuff. But he instructed them first, Acts 1 verse 4, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. So their first uh, instruction is to wait on the Lord. And then before they embark on ministry, verse 8, again, Acts chapter 1, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, and in the end of the earth. But even then, before they were to go, they were still to stay where they were for a while. And they were in an upper room where they're staying, and we read verse 14 of Acts 1, all those were one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And it's interesting and significant that Jesus didn't command the disciples to pray for the lost, although that's certainly appropriate. Their first prayer was to be for the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Now, how do we do that? We just say, mission team's going, they've got us covered. They're going to show compassion next week. I don't have to. I don't think that's the right application. I mean, I'm glad they're going. I'm glad they're going to show compassion. Doesn't get me off the hook for anything. But how does that affect our prayer life? Think about people you know who aren't believers. Unsaved, family, friends, co-workers, person in the next cubicle or at the next desk. And it's possible to pray regularly for the salvation of that loved one, that neighbor, that friend, that fellow employee, and stop there and let our concern end with our prayer. But when we pray for the Lord to send someone to those unsaved people, and you're opening yourself up to that someone possibly, maybe, perhaps, actually being you. I mean, it's possible to pray for someone's salvation while you're keeping them at arm's length. But when we sincerely, we're told to pray earnestly, asking the Lord to send someone to them to talk to them about Jesus, then we place ourselves at his disposal to become one of his workers in that ministry. We can pray for the salvation of those we know who don't know Jesus. But we really need to pray that Jesus would send someone to them to talk to them, to be their friend, to build a relationship that will lead them to the Lord. But to be honest with you, it's very easy to talk about using the right words, and it's very easy to talk about doing the right actions, and it's very easy to talk about backing it all up with prayer. But what does it look like in real life? I mean... Most of the people in my life are pretty messy. But messy people need 
messy people. It's my conviction that gospel awareness erupts from the intersection of beholding the glory of God in Christ in the midst of profound brokenness. And that's what we see in this passage. We see amazing action of Jesus teaching, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing these people, healing the man who is mute, freeing him from demon possession, the glory of God in Christ. But he's surrounded by profound brokenness. And the Apostle Paul tells us, you know, that's part and parcel of the regular, normal, ordinary Christian life. In 1 Thessalonians 1, you have become imitators of us and of the Lord, for you receive the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Affliction and joy are not words I put in the same sentence most of the time. But Paul has no problem with that. And so it's my conviction that the joy of the Holy Spirit must exclude the modern focus on living in total comfort as our chief virtue. I'm not saying comfort's bad. I'm saying comfort is our chief goal is bad. I mean, rest is good and the Sabbath is commanded. But a life of pursuing comfort at all costs, which I think is common in our county, is dangerous to our souls. We have not been called to avoid difficulty and conflict, but to trust Jesus within them. So how do we do it? Here's two key areas where we can stay in the thick of the messy Christian life, but yet knowing that's fertile soil for the gospel working powerfully in our midst. And the first area of being involved with messy people is in the church. First place you need to be involved, look around. You're surrounded by messy people. One of them's talking to you right now. And the temptation when you're in ministry is to think that you're going to sort of graduate on to easier and easier ministry. You know, that means interacting with the easy personalities in the church, but not so much with the harder personalities in the church, which in most cases means further insulating yourself from other people. In fact, it's a great temptation for most of us to remove ourselves from street-level face-to-face ministry to focus on, you know, studying, writing, blogging, Facebooking, arguing online, because that enables us to interact with all those messy church people, but at a distance. And again, those things aren't bad in and of themselves, and surely some of them are actually important. But if you spend all your time by yourself, or only spend time with those who you think aren't messy, then you remove yourself further and further from that visceral compassion that Jesus felt when he looked upon the helpless crowd here in Matthew 9. says he saw the people and had compassion. And if you're never seeing people face to face, compassion isn't going to be part of your life, except at a distance. Apostle Peter uh, tells the elders in 1 Peter 5, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, 
as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Notice that shepherds are to, or elders are to shepherd the flock of God that is among them. Assuming that they are actually, you know, among the people, not away from them or over them. And to be honest, you're either blind, foolish, or incredibly naive if you think the church isn't full of messy people with messy lives. Every single church on the planet is full of messy people, including and especially this one. And you can't outsource all the messy people in your life. At some point, you have to love them personally and counsel them directly and disciple them regularly. Of course, you can't give yourself to each and every one here, but you can give yourself to some one, two, or three persons here. Churches need the compassionate response of Christ. Second, if your church family is messy, it's nothing compared to your family. Nothing compared to your family. That's the next blank in there. You know, a lot of times dealing with messy people in the church family is hard and it's emotionally taxing and the temptation becomes to withhold that same level of emotional involvement from our spouse and our kids. And, you know, when church life gets difficult, as it sometimes does, we want to retreat into a well-ordered, problem-free home like yours. Because your kids are perfect and brothers never fight and sisters never scream and mom's always beautiful and dad always has time to talk. Why are you laughing? Well, leaving that alternate reality and returning to actual reality, we truly wish our families weren't messy, but they are. I saw a great quote recently. It said, grandchildren are God's reward for not strangling your teenagers. That'll discourage some of you and encourage others. But you have to realize your family isn't generally any messier than everyone else's. It's just yours. And so it's more personal, more difficult, more frustrating for you. The ones you love bring the most hurt. That's true. And we want our home to be respites from messy people, not more of the same. But that's not how it goes. And so families should be our first ministry. Now, I'm going to speak to the guys for a moment because I'm a guy. That's what I know. So guys, don't avoid the hard conversations and the deep questions with your wife. She wants to be known. She wants to feel like you want to know her and not just have her. And so you do both of you a disservice if you keep her at emotional arm's length for your own emotional convenience. Your kids need you too, and not just in a quality time a kind of way, but in the quantity time kind of way, and not just in the fun kind of way, but in the faith kind of way. Are there difficult issues or questions you're not addressing with your kids because you feel helpless or ignorant or scared? And those circumstances are designed for that depending on God, relying on God that helps us and our families know Jesus more. Don't hold back the hard stuff from your kids. Conflict, change, challenges, disappointment, discouragement, uncertainty, messiness. Use it to teach them, use it to disciple them, use it to love them. And you won't do it perfectly. I sure didn't. You will fail, and I have a long list of personal family failures. 
But if all that biblical stuff about his grace is greater than my sin and his strength is present in my weakness, if all that is true, it's true for your family too. The greatest lesson I've learned in 22 years of pastoral ministry is to learn to trust God for my kids. And that's hard. And my kids are grown. And I'm still learning how to do that. My friend Tom Cannon, pastor of Red Mountain Church in Birmingham, Alabama, is really big into music. He plays in a classic rock cover band called the Buzz Killingtons. I love that name. But he posts lots of stuff about music because that's his thing. And he recently posted this following quote from Rick Rubin, who's a classic rock musician, now he's a very prominent music producer. And Rick Rubin was asked about working with Johnny Cash and some of the uh, last albums that Johnny Cash did. Rick Rubin was the producer. And he asked him, what's your best memory of working with Johnny Cash? And he replies, quote, on our first album, there was a song he wrote. I can't remember which one it was, but I listened to it and said, do you think you could take some of the eyes and me's out of it? And he thought about it, and he was like, yeah, I think I can do that. And he did. So 10 years later, I'm visiting him in Nashville. It's near the end of his life. He's in a wheelchair. He's blind, pretty much. It felt so awkward. So I said, what, what have you been working on lately? And he said, I've been working on using I and me less. I said, really? He said, yeah, remember you gave me that comment on the song. That's what I'm working on, using I and me less. Rick Rubin says, incredible. He didn't mean it in the context of songs. He meant it in the context of life. Jesus proclaims good news. He told people that God had done something for them that they couldn't do for themselves. And through Jesus, he made it possible to have a right relationship with him. Although God in the flesh, he didn't come to be served, but to serve. And he listened and healed and encouraged and taught and loved those he encountered. George Eldon Ladd has this delightful summary, a famous commentator, delightful summary of Matthew chapter 9. He says, the scribes taught and nothing happened. Jesus spoke and demons fled, storms were stilled, dead were raised, sins forgiven, his authority and deeds and words was nothing less than the presence of the kingdom of God. And when Jesus shows up, then we're able to work on using I and me less. Pray about that. Start right now and then I'll close. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you've given us a king. We often act like we don't have one, but we do. And he asks us to pray. And he asks us to pray for more workers for his harvest. And so we ask this morning that you would raise up workers among us.
We ask that you would raise up workers for children's ministry and youth ministry and mercy ministry and for missions and for any ministry among us that tells other people the good news of God's grace as it's found in Jesus. So, Lord, if there's anyone among us this day who comes here not trusting in Christ, we ask that by your Spirit you would draw that person to yourself that they might believe in Christ. And finally, continue to work in us to know and believe that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Amen. I've chosen a different one for this occasion. From 1 Timothy chapter 2. Receive the Lord's blessing. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. God bless you. We'll see you at lunch.